everybody. Welcome back to the I Play 2 podcast. I'm your host, Rob Adler. This week, former college lacrosse player Alexis Harguello Jr. joins the show. He won a junior college national championship while playing for Herkimer. And after that, Alexis played Division I at Stony Brook. Once his college career ended, Alexis began working behind the camera in television, winning several Emmy Awards along the way. And he and I worked together at ESPN Classic as the 21st century began. His father, Alexis Harguello Sr., was a boxer who won world titles in three different weight classes, and his first fight with Aaron Pryor was named Rig Magazine's Fight of the Decade for the 1980s. Also, like his father, Alexis tried boxing, winning his first five amateur bouts. Alexis, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. It's always great to talk to you again, man. It's been a long time. I know. It's been a long time since those days in Bristol. No joke. <laughs> So first question is, I didn't really know this until not that long ago. How did you get into playing lacrosse? Oh, man, it's a funny story. I was in pottery class when I was a sophomore in high school. I was just talking to my friend, Eric Tunkey, who played lacrosse and was part of the lacrosse club. And he was just recruiting people. And we were just having a conversation. And he just by chance said, you know, Alexis should just come out and try it. I have extra equipment that you can use and you can just come out and try it. So that's how it all started. By having a conversation with him, I ended up coming out and practiced for a couple of days and I ended up falling in love with sport. And it was just so different because it wasn't a sport that you saw a lot of in Miami. And it was just a club part of the high school that I was at. That was pretty much it. Just by having a conversation in pottery class pretty much changed my life because I used lacrosse as a vehicle to get me to college because I'll have to say I wasn't the greatest student. But lacrosse kept me motivated enough to stay up with my studies in order for me to want to be able to play. So that was a, a little different twist because obviously for my family too, they didn't know what lacrosse was. So it was fun for everyone. I'm having a hard time imagining you in pottery class. I know it was one of our elective classes in high school and it was fun. Well, one of the football coaches, Coach Bowles used to teach the class. We'd have different projects that we'd have to mold. And sometimes when they put it in the fire, it would stay together. Sometimes it wouldn't, but it was definitely a fun class. And you know what? I haven't really spoken to Eric in a long time and I've never told him the story. I don't even know if he realizes how much of an impact lacrosse turned out to be in my life. Do you play any other sports growing up other than lacrosse? I dabbled in a lot. I played Pop Warner football when I was younger. And then when I got to high school, I played JV football and I ran cross country. So I tried to stay pretty active for the most part while I was in high school. How did those other sports translate to help you on the lacrosse field? That was the one reason why I ran cross country. First, I love to run. I love to be out by myself and being able to just think and run as long as I can. But the cross country aspect is just great because with lacrosse, you're just running the whole time. It's a big open field and you're running back and forth, back and forth. And me being a midfielder, I just thought it was perfect for me to have that cross-country background and even just to stay in shape during the off season. But it was always one of the best sports and I still run to this day. It's just huge for me. So I've always been a big advocate for running and cross-country made a big part of my life growing up. Speaking of growing up, what was Miami like to grow up when in the late 70s and early 80s? Oh, man, I love Miami. Miami was great. It was unlike any other city in Florida, obviously. 
what really stood out to me about Miami was just the amount of differences in culture and all the different cultures that I was exposed to going to high school there and growing up there because I did all my schooling there once I moved there from Nicaragua. And it was just amazing because when I went away to school in upstate New York, where Herkimer was, they really didn't have the cultural differences that we had in Miami. And I was able to experience so many different cultures and that made me appreciate who I was and what I had and appreciate all the other cultures that Miami had to offer and that we all were able to get a piece of growing up. Miami is just one big melting pot of differences and colors and people that all get along. You have Cubans and Nicaraguans, you have Puerto Ricans, just every kind and class of person. And for the most part, everybody's civil, everybody gets along. And that's how it always was for me in high school. There was never, ever, ever any kind of struggle between people just because of race, culture, or any background. We always got along. I didn't really appreciate it until I went away to New York. And I think it was in my freshman seminar class that I had to write an essay about where we grew up and how much of an impact it had on our lives. And it was actually one of the first things that I was ever called out for in college that my professor He actually read it out loud to everybody and he thought it was actually pretty interesting, my point of view. So yeah, I've always been appreciative of Miami and the people and the culture and the food. And I miss it, obviously, being gone for so long since I've been in New York for 25 plus years. But yeah, you know what? My wife and I always talk. She's like, you're a New Yorker now because I've been here so long. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm always going to be a kid from Miami. Food scene in Miami is just absolutely incredible. Almost no matter what kind of cuisine you like, you can find multiple options to have. Oh, yeah. From the Cuban food to the stone crab to seafood, everything. It's amazing. What was it like growing up with your dad being a champion? There were two sides to it. For the most part, it was all great. It was amazing. I got to see and experience things that not many people get to experience in life. And I cherish that. I guess sometimes it would be a problem at school growing up just because people would want to fight me and try to fight me or egg me on to get into a fight. And it never really happened because I knew how to deflect things and I knew how to pretty much stay out of trouble because if I got in trouble in school, my trouble would be worse if I got home. So I tried to avoid everything that was going to get me in trouble at home. But for the most part, like I said, it was amazing to be able to go to the gyms with my dad and watch him train and to go to the fights. We went through a lot of, obviously, some ups and downs because of my dad's career towards the end. It was a roller coaster here and there, but you know what? It was an amazing experience. My life has been something out of a book or a dream because it's been a lot of joy and a lot of love that I felt growing up with my family and being able to see my dad excel in boxing. And I wouldn't change it for the world. I think you were around 10 or 11 when your dad had the first prior fight. What was it like leading up to the fight? I think, to be honest, it maybe wasn't the best move for my dad because he usually would go away for a training camp, but we stayed in Miami for that training camp. And I think he got a little distracted, but it was an amazing fight. They left everything out in that ring that night. And I don't think they were ever the same after that fight. It's something that I still cherish. It's still hard for me to watch, obviously, but knowing the friendship that came out of it, they loved each other because they definitely gave each other their best. 
It was a tough fight for us to experience because I never ever saw my dad in trouble. Maybe he was knocked down here and there. Like he got knocked down against Gannigan in the first round. So you know, I've seen him on the floor. So we have seen him get rocked here and there, but never to the point of that first prior fight. That was something that we never, ever experienced. Seeing him actually down on the canvas, almost unconscious, and the way that everybody sprung and was surrounding him and stuff like that, it was really nerve-wracking. We had won a lot through my dad's career, and, and this was just one of those moments where Aaron was the better man that night. And I remember going back and forth between the fight and the dressing room because my mom wasn't out in the crowd. She wasn't watching because she was so nervous. She never really watched anyways. I was always the messenger that went back and forth. She would go out for the pre-fight stuff, but then once the fight started, she was in the dressing room. So I remember going back and forth, telling her what was going on, and then just the tears, and now everybody was upset in the dressing room, and that was tough to deal with and experience, but it just taught us how to deal with adversity. Are you still close with the prior family? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still talk to the priors. I stayed in contact with them through Facebook. I actually just saw Stephen Pryor, who's Aaron's oldest. I just saw him in Las Vegas while I was there for the last fight. So I do stay in touch with them. I was actually at Aaron's wake that they had for him. And I actually spoke to give a small eulogy about him. And it's such a friendship that developed with them that we all cherish. We've talked a lot about your dad, but how much of a role did your mom play with your dad having to go away to camps and fighting? She was everything because she had to hold everything together when my dad was either training or even after boxing when he was traveling for work because he was a commentator. So he was on the road a lot. So if it wasn't for my mom, I mean, she pretty much held the house together and she taught me everything. She was the dad when my dad wasn't there. So she was the enforcer at times, but she was pretty much the backbone to the family. So yeah, oh my God, she's so vital and so important to keeping that household straight, making sure the bills were paid and everything was being taken care of. She would have to do a lot to be able to pick up the slack, I guess, for when my dad was concentrating on his thing. And it wasn't just about the household and the kids because it was me and my younger brothers, but she also had to see to my dad's things and his meals. And my dad didn't have a chef or anything like that. Like all his meals were prepared by my mom. That's another funny story about growing up with a boxing family is that I never really understood or realized how difficult it probably would have been for my dad when he is in training camp having to make weight. And here we are having these big meals in front of him. And he would just sit there and shake his head. There was this big running joke saying that he would always say like when he was younger, he was poor and he couldn't eat. And now he had money and he still couldn't eat because he had to make weight. So that was always a running joke at the table. Almost like pawning. There should have been a penalty flag thrown. Yeah, totally. Totally. And you know what? Being a kid, you just don't realize it, you know? So like, here I am, I'm having seconds, you know, and just stuffing my face. And my dad's just shaking his head at me in anger because he can't eat. I got to say, there were a lot of times, obviously, when we walked around the house on like eggshells, because I'm telling you, making weight, just there's nothing nice about it. You've got to make weight. You got to make weight. So you're skipping meals. Like I said, you're dehydrated. 
and you're not in the best of moods, you know? So we knew when to approach my dad and when not to. But like I said, it was an amazing experience to be in that boxing world. Getting back to lacrosse, just how much did you want to learn and get better at the sport? Honestly, lacrosse was a really big thing for me in high school. And it was just something that a bug bit me and it was just something that I needed to learn more of. So I would watch tapes and I would watch the Gate brothers who were at Syracuse at the time. And there was a guy who played at Syracuse too. His name was Rodney Mullen. I watched him a lot. There was just something about the sport that really drew me to it. So I was always just so into it that if I didn't have a ride to practice, I would run in my gear to practice. I was always down the street. I lived literally like a block away from my high school. So I would walk to my high school and I would throw the lacrosse ball against the wall by myself for hours just to try to get my stick skills better. And it was just by chance that I went away to a lacrosse camp after my junior year. And that's how it all started. I went to a camp and a couple of coaches saw me there. And that's how I got the opportunity to go to college. What was the recruiting process like for you? It's only a club sport where you're playing in Miami and outside the camp. I can't imagine that a ton of coaches had a chance to see. It was just word of mouth, really. Like a couple of coaches saw me at the camp and then they sent me letters and Hampton Sydney was one of those schools. It's an all men's college in Virginia. I took a visit out there my senior year. And little by little, there were other college coaches that caught wind of me. And I had the opportunity to go to West Point and they wanted me to go to the prep school. And I really wasn't into that. And I just wasn't really ready or really mature enough to realize that opportunity. And just by chance, a coach from upstate New York had contacted me. And the big connection was my high school coach in Miami was from Long Island, Coach Roy Kelly. And he was really instrumental in me getting to college. This was after I graduated high school. I was working at a department store for like three or four months after I graduated, not really sure what I was going to do. My high school coach literally came to my house and was like, listen, here are these three applications for these junior colleges in New York. You have to take advantage of these opportunities in any way you can. And he was right. So I filled them out, sent them out. Literally within a couple of weeks, I was gone. Went from Miami to upstate New York. I started at Herkimer in January of 92. And that's all she wrote. I ended up staying up there for two years as a player. I had to stay for an extra semester to graduate but that was pretty much it. It was just lacrosse that was my vehicle to keep me motivated in my academics and to keep me motivated in staying, obviously, on the right path so I could play. It was crazy how everything worked out. We've touched a little bit on this, but how much of a culture shock was it for you going from South Florida to New York, especially in terms of not only the people, but the weather and the food? Oh, man, the weather was the number one. The food and the people I could get used to real quick because everybody was really nice up there, especially having teammates and them being so accepting. And they knew that I wasn't the greatest lacrosse player, but they knew that I was dedicated to the sport. So I think that that helped me a little bit being accepted. But the culture shock was definitely the weather, just because I literally was in the snow belt or upstate New York. And I went from 80 degree weather right into winter. 
And we would practice sometimes in the gym inside, but most of the time we'd practice outside. So you know what? I really had no shame because I was the only guy who practiced in long johns under my shorts and people would make fun of me, but I did not care. They could rip on me all day long, but I just needed to stay warm. So I learned how to layer and just had to grin and bear it. But that was the biggest shock. To this day, I don't like winter, but it's just something that I have to deal with. So I just grin and bear it. Josh, you don't really have it in Miami. What was the first snowball fight like? It was great. I probably ended up losing, but it was a lot of fun. I had seen snow, but just never to the amount that we used to get in upstate. That first year that I was up there, I think we had like one of the worst storms recorded up there. And it was just six to seven feet of snow. These snow banks were just huge. And we could just dive into these snow banks and literally like get lost in there. Those were good times, but I still do not like the snow. What was it like to win a national championship? It happened my first year there. I didn't play that much. I would get in in games where we were ahead by a lot, but it was exhilarating just being able to have a small piece because I was more of a practice player. Go against the starters and I would help them prepare. But in the national championship game, I didn't play. I watched it from the stands, but I still felt like I was a part of the team and we accomplished something. Obviously, I didn't score or anything, but I feel like I still helped the guys and we were lucky to go back that next year. And I actually played and scored a couple of goals in the national championship game. So it was great to experience it both from the sidelines as a freshman and then actually being on the field. That was more exhilarating. Obviously, I felt more accomplished, but it was great to be undefeated for two years. We never lost games there. Like I've never experienced a loss there. We had a reunion last year for that 92 team that got inducted into the Hall of Fame up at Herkimer. So it was great being back there and seeing those guys again. But it was just like a perfect setting because I didn't realize I went to Herkimer, who just happened to be starting to become a powerhouse in lacrosse. And you know what the weird thing about it is that the reason why I ended up going upstate instead of going to Long Island was merely because Herkimer had housing on campus and Nassau Community College, what I was looking at, because that's where my lacrosse coach went and they're bitter rivals too. So I said no to Nassau because I would have to live off campus and I would need a car and all these different things that would complicate things for me. So I ended up going to Herkimer. The coach there, Coach Paul Wareham, he had a huge impact on my life there as well for those two years. And you get to realize that these coaches are amazing people because they're just so selfless and they're out to help so many kids. And I'll tell you a story. When I was in high school, sometimes for cross country, I wouldn't show up at practice just because I would be exhausted from either going out with my friends or something. And my coach would literally show up at my house and my mom would let him in the door and come to my room and he would open my door, wake me up and be like, come on, we're going, let's go. I'd be like, what are you doing here? And literally he would pull me out of bed and he would drag me out and I would end up running that day. Coach Bill Crinsley, that was my cross country coach in high school. And he pushed me to be the best runner that I could be, even though I was lazy at times to get to practice. But lacrosse, it wasn't so much that they needed to push me because I was so into it. But my lacrosse coach was a huge, huge figure. in Every coach that I've had, whether it's cross country or lacrosse or everything, they've all played a role in 
pretty much making me who I am today. For people who don't understand the role of the scout team, regardless of the sport, could you kind of talk a little bit about what your role is and how you help better prepare, let's say, the starters for whom they're playing? Well, the scout team is pretty much the opposite team. We're running the same offense that our next game is going to be running. As the scout team, we're going 100% because we don't get on the field. So our practice time is our play time. That's our games. So we used to go all out. We used to compete with these starters like if we were the opposing team. Yes, we would take it easy, obviously, with a slashing or being physical. But when it came down to playing defense and locking down and trying to shut someone off because they're the best player on the team. And that's like one of the things that you're trying to do is shut off players because they're so good. But we get beaten down by the starters, but at the same time, we'd make them better because we wouldn't back down. And it was just a serious competition every day of practice. Everybody challenged each other. Everybody went out there fighting for a spot. We loved each other. We respected each other. But when that whistle blew, we were out there to make each other better. It's amazing the difference in player that I became from my freshman year at Herkimer to my last year there, which is just a year. It was just an unbelievable improvement being able to play with the level of athletes that upstate New York had. Because in Miami, you had one or two players on the team that could handle the ball really well, whereas everybody on the team in upstate threw lefty and righty with no problem. There was no hesitation to go lefty. There was no hesitation to go righty. So it was eye-opening to have that level of lacrosse for me. I was just a sponge at that time because I was just so into lacrosse that I just wanted to be the best player that I could. So the scout team was huge, and I learned a lot from playing that role. From Herkimer, how did you end up at Stony Brook? That was just a Cortland connection because my coach at Herkimer, Paul Wareham, went to Cortland, who was an amazing attackman there. And John Aspie, who was the head coach at Stony Brook at the time, they were teammates. It was just Coach Wareham telling him about me and that I could play D1 lacrosse. And I was at that level. And that was always my dream. That's like the one thing that I aspired for in lacrosse was to go D1. I had opportunities to go D3, play D2 out of high school. But I'd rather go try junior college for two years and see if I can transfer into a D1 program. And that actually ended up happening. The transfer over to Stony Brook was great. The lacrosse was at that same level. I love that we played a lot of great teams that year. We played the Naval Academy. We played North Carolina, Lehigh, Lafayette, Dartmouth. My junior year at Stony Brook was great. I got transferred to a, a long stick midi, which is more defensive role. The only thing that I regret about Stony Brook is that I didn't play my senior year because I took a year off to go try boxing. And I missed out on playing my fourth year because they give you five years to play for. And since I went away for that year, I missed out. So that's like the only regret, but I still, I was able to try boxing. So that was good. Your boxing career as an amateur was short-lived, but you were incredibly successful. What kind of went in the decision to try boxing? Kind of take me through that whole process. So while I was at Herkimer, there was a benefit up at the college that they put on some amateur fights. And I wasn't in boxing at all. I wasn't even involved in the card or anything. But as they were putting this event together, my teammates were like, oh, you should try it. You should go out there and fight one fight. And I was like, yeah, I'll try it. So sure enough, I was put on this card 
to fight somebody, just an amateur fight. All the proceeds went to a charity that night. And the fight was at the college in our gym. I fought some guy who went two rounds. They stopped the fight in the second. All my teammates were there. It was like an amazing night. It was so funny. And that was it. I never thought about anything. And then a couple of weeks later, a manager actually from Canastota, New York, Tony Graziano, actually approached my trainer that was training me in Herkimer. And he came out to talk to me and he was like, listen, if you ever want to try boxing, you want to try to be a professional, get in contact with me. I'd be interested in managing you. And I was like, oh, no way. This is a one and done thing. I'm not going to be a boxer. Like I'm a lacrosse player. I'm not doing that. So sure enough, after my junior year at Stony Brook, I had actually met my wife, who's my wife now, Michelle, and we were just talking and she was like, oh, why don't you try it? This might be the last time you have the opportunity to, to try this because you're going to graduate soon and then you're going to go into the working world. So this might be the only chance. And that's pretty much all it was. I got in contact with Tony and I moved from Stony Brook. I went up to Canastota, which is 30 minutes east of Syracuse. And I moved up there and I lived in Tony's hotel. He had a hotel and a restaurant right outside. I trained in Syracuse and I worked at the restaurant. That's pretty much how it all came to light. We tried it. I enjoyed it. It was good. The toughest part was obviously making weight. I was fluctuating between 160 and 147. And it wasn't that hard for me. It wasn't like I was killing myself or starving myself to make weight, but I spoke to my dad about turning pro and had a conversation about it. And what really changed my mind was just him telling me that, look, I don't mind you fighting. I don't mind you getting into boxing. That's great. And if you want to do it, move down to Nicaragua and we'll train you. But just keep this in mind. I fought just for the very reason. So you wouldn't have to get into something like this. So you wouldn't have to fight. I expect you to go to a school and graduate from college and just have a different experience than what I was forced into. So that really made a big impact on me and pretty much just changed my mind. But I enjoyed it up until the moment that I had that conversation with my dad and everything clicked into place. And I just realized the importance of not living up to not only my dad's beliefs of what he wanted me to become, but also my mom. Boxing was the last thing that she wanted me to do. So it was a good year. Like I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change anything having that boxing experience. And a little part of me still wonders what would have happened if I would have kept with that road. But the smart side of my brain says that I'm better off just because the wear and tear that that sport does to you. And you go into the ring, you never know what happened. That risk that you take every single time you go through those ropes. And I just would rather live my life and have a normal life. That's the one thing growing up with a famous dad. There's no real normal life. It's a little different than everybody else's. And that's what I've always wanted to be is just to have a normal life and work and have kids. And that's what I feel like I've accomplished. I'm extremely happy with that. Very lucky. So how did you get into the TV business? That was just like the crazy part is that I pretty much would pillage through my dad's Rolodex and I was just calling people, leaving voicemails. And two to three weeks after I graduated, I landed an interview with Lori Orlando and 
I went into the city to talk to her and she pretty much almost hired me on the spot. They had boxing questions and I knew the answers to all of them. This was historical questions. This wasn't just like talking about recent fighters. This was talking about the history of boxing when she had some questions just to see if I knew the sport. Luckily I did because I watched a lot of historical fights growing up. Like my dad was a nut. When it came to boxing, he was buff. He wanted to know everything about the old time fighters and their styles and all that stuff. So I always watched a lot of those old films and a lot of the stuff that we ended up using over at ESPN Classic. So I was lucky enough to land that gig. It was great while it lasted because I was in the city. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And I was just so happy. And then like six months into it, ESPN bought us out. And then we had to move up to Bristol. So I didn't really have a chance to stay in Brooklyn. So I'm going with a job. So I ended up moving up to Bristol. I spent like eight months up there. And then I was able to move back to the city. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, she lived in Brooklyn. And I was commuting back and forth almost every weekend. And after a while, that just became too much. And she wasn't going to move to Bristol because of her job. So... I have to try to find something back in the city. I figured it was having to stare at my face for eight months. You said, that's <laughs> enough of this. Not at all, man. I enjoyed that time. The only thing that I felt like it was just, I don't know, they kept us across the street. It just felt so odd to me. We were like the redheaded stepchild across the street that everybody disliked because we had normal business hours, you know, because <laughs> we were there from nine to five and nobody else in the company was... A lot of people didn't like that, I don't think. When I would go back across the street, as we used to say, it would be funny because people I worked with at Sports Center would say, you still work here? Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, that was a lot of fun, though. It was a great time. You mentioned that you would watch some historical boxing fights. What's a favorite historical boxing fight that maybe even now you watch? Oh, my God. Lewis Schmeling. The first fight... Wasn't the greatest outcome, but then the rematch when he beat him and won, that was unbelievable. Just the social aspect of that fight and what was behind all that and the magnitude of that, it was just an amazing, amazing fight. It was just like the whole world was watching that fight just because of the political stuff behind it and Joe Lewis being the fighter that he was at the time. And he was a champion for so long and to see him lose to Schmeling and then finally in the rematch, get his way. The magnitude of that fight was unbelievable. And I still watch it. Anything that I see on, if it's a classic fight, I'll watch it. All those guys, everything, anything historical, LaMotta, Willie Pep, Sandy Sadler, all those fights, Tony Graziano and Zale. It was boxing when boxing was in its most primitive and the essence of true boxing back in those days. Willie Pep had a great quote. He was divorced multiple times, and he said, my ex-wives are great housekeepers. I divorced them, and they kept the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Willie Pep was one of the nicest and funniest people ever. That's the beauty of being able to go up to the Hall of Fame and meet these guys and be able to have a conversation with them. Those stories, especially of meeting my dad up there and being with him during those weekends, were unbelievable. Just being able to hang out with Michael Spinks and Jake LaMotta and big names like that. And Aaron, too. Every single time we'd go up there and see Aaron, they would have the best time together. He's nothing but jokes and laughter. And when two guys go at it, they're almost at war one-on-one -on -one, and they're trying to take each other's heads off. 
the friendships and the love and admiration that comes out of those grueling fights is the most beautiful part about it. Hands down. It's amazing to see when you go up there. It's every fighter that has gone in and faced each other that has this admiration for each other that they're almost brothers. And it's great to see. You mentioned the fight a little bit earlier. Did you get a chance to meet either Schmeling or Lewis? Oh, no, no, I never got the chance. I would have loved to. I did meet Ali once. And honestly, Rob, that was another reason why I didn't get into boxing. This was pretty much a story. I went with my dad to the Tyson Spinks fight in Atlantic City. After the fight, I think it was Ali's birthday. They had this big gathering for him in one of the ballrooms. My dad and I are sitting at a table and and Ali walks in and there's this just huge energy when you see Muhammad and just the amount of people that are clamoring to be with him and to touch him and to talk to him. And he was friendly with my dad. So he saw my dad and he came over, gave him a big hug and my dad introduced me to him and I had a conversation with him and he was like, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? And I told him that I wanted to be a boxer. (laughs) And he sat me down and he was like, no, 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 please, please do not do that. And he was talking, you know, obviously with his low voice because his speech was already being affected by Parkinson's and he was almost in my ear and he was like, no, 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 please don't do that. He's like, do anything else, go to school, get your education, be a playboy, do whatever you want, but do not. He was like, just begging me, do not do this. Do not be a boxer. Having that moment with him, I got to say that moment did a lot. Because, you know, I always went to that when thinking about making that decision. So it resonated with me. Be like, wow, the greatest of all time was telling me no. So there must be a reason. And my dad's telling me the same thing. So to go against these two supermen who were in my life, my dad was the best. And then you have Ali. I was like, no way, I can't do it. It's just something that stuck with me. And that was like one of the big voices that I also heard. It was my dad and it was my mom. And then I also went to that conversation with Ali. Fact about Ali, his younger brother actually made his pro debut on the undercard of Ali Liston One. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, his brother also has Parkinson's, but boxed under... It was probably 10, 15 fights. He and Muhammad actually had an exhibition fight against each other that was televised in the early 70s as well. Oh, wow. I knew that he had a brother, but I didn't know if he fought or not. I wasn't sure if he did. Because I would see him in the background in pictures and stuff like that, because I think I remember him being in his corners here and there, but I wasn't sure if he actually got into fighting or not. Going back to TV... You leave ESPN to try to get back to Brooklyn and get back to New York. How did you end up successfully doing that? It was Lori. Lori always luckily had my back. I am so grateful to her because it was just the timing too. CSTV was just starting as I was itching to get back into television because I was coaching at an all-boys private school. I was a PE coach. It was literally like right after 9-11 that I was able to get this job and coach at an all-boys school on the Upper East Side. And I was just a regular PE coach. We'd go out, take the bus to the fields on the West Side. 
And whatever was in season, we'd play. We'd play football, baseball. They played soccer. We got a little lacrosse going there, a little program. And I also had an after-school program that I started there. It was just a media program where some of the kids had a camera and we put together like these small little features. And I just taught them a little bit about the camera, taught them a little bit about editing. It was just a little program that they put together just to kind of help the kids because they didn't have that program available before I got there. They didn't really have anybody that knew television at all. So I was able to do that and teach a little bit about media and shooting and video editing and stuff like that. So it was fun. You were in New York for 9-11. What was that whole experience like? Oh man, it was surreal, obviously. I was at Oxygen Network at Oxygen Sports at the time, and I was an assistant editor and I was doing the overnight shift because I was digitizing footage that would come in and I was home and my wife wasn't home. She was on her way to work and I got a call from her. She was on the FDR, I think. She was just telling me that there was smoke coming out of the World Trade and telling me this and that. And I would turn on the TV and I saw what was happening. And then she saw the second plane hit. She started screaming. I saw something, a missile or something. And I told her, I was like, no, there was a plane because I saw it on TV. And I just started getting calls from my friends. We were all just in tears, man, because we didn't know what was going on. I would go up to the roof of my building when I was watching the towers just all smoke up because I could see lower Manhattan from my building in Bay Ridge. And it was just so crazy. The end of that first day, just everybody being dumbfounded about what we were living in. The smell that was coming across from the East River, everything that was still burning in lower Manhattan. It was just surreal. And after that, everybody was just, I think, in a daze for a while. We didn't know what to think. We were just so shocked by everything that we lived through and what we saw that day and just the sadness that came out of it. And as the days passed, you knew of people that were actually in the building, people that were related to my wife's family that were firemen that passed away that day. It was awful. It was just such an awful experience. And I mean, everybody seemed to be connected to knowing somebody that was in those towers. And New York, I feel like that was the best New York that we've seen in a while after that, because everybody definitely came together. How long did it take your wife to get home that day? Because everything got shut down, roads, subways. She had to, I think, leave her car in Manhattan and she had to walk across the bridge. Oh my goodness, that's yeah. like four miles, right? I think it took her like six hours or something like that to be able to get home. And I don't know how she got home because the trains weren't running. I think somebody had to go pick her up from Brooklyn somewhere because everything was frozen. It was crazy. I can't imagine your wife having family members who were firemen and just that whole day of the uncertainty of what was going on. Yeah. And you know, what was crazy is that my little brother was in town visiting two weeks before that. We took him to the World Trade and we were up at the windows of the world and we showed him the whole building and did the tour and everything. We went out to the observation deck and literally like two weeks later, we were just, can't believe it. We were just there. It was just by chance too, because we would have never been there if it were not for my brother. But we took a picture and everything. And then it was just so surreal that that happened and we had just been there. And they were gone. That was the other thing that was just so crazy is that you never ever thought that those things would ever collapse like that. It's just unbelievable image to live through for all New Yorkers. I had one of those 
being an idiot moments a couple of weeks after that. I was doing opens and closes on the Lower West Side for some shows I was working on. And I look out the window and I say, I never remember seeing Fort Lee before. Oh, yeah. And I had a couple of people working at the building just give me these looks. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, now I know why. <laughs> yeah, I felt pretty bad. Everything's so fresh then. You don't even realize it. So you were a PE coach. How did you end up getting back into TV? Just through Oxygen. Oxygen Sports and that network that Oprah had a part in. I got to work in women's sports for about a year and a half. And it was amazing. It was great. I did freestyle skiing. We did beach volleyball. We did ultra marathons. A little bit of everything that we covered. They were based out of Chelsea Market at the time. So it was like a cool place to be. The market had just opened up on the west side. And we had our offices there. And everything was nice and modern. It was cool. It was a big difference going from across the street at ESPN to the Chelsea Market. After ESPN and Oxygen, you spent almost two decades at what's now known as CBS Sports Network, right? Yes. I left about a month shy of 20 years because I got the opportunity to move over to Showtime. But yeah, those 19 years flew by. Loved working at CBS Sports. I got the chance to do long form programming, which are hour shows, which I love. I cut a lot of short features, but doing that long form is where I feel like I excel and I love doing those shows. So it was a lot of great things that I picked up there. I was able to start shooting there. I had my own camera package that I would either go out on the field and I'd be producing or I'd be shooting for somebody. So I got to learn a lot and broaden my abilities by picking up different things and having the opportunity to. It's not many places where they'd ask you to be like, hey, you want to try this? Do you want to try shooting? And they'd send you out and throw you in the fire and you got to learn. So I'm forever indebted to CBS Sports and the opportunities that they gave me there. It's an awesome place. Love all the people that still work there. And it was great to be there. What's a favorite long form piece that you've done? Oh man, right off the bat, you know what? Right before I left, there's a series that we had called Four Sides to the Story. And the show is based off of you have a certain sports moment in time and you find four different people that were at that game that can tell you their day and their experience from being at that moment in sports. And for me, it was the 1999 Women's World Cup. Brandy Chastain scored that penalty shot and took off her jersey. My four subjects, JP Della Camera, who was the commentator for ABC that day. Robert Beck, who was the photographer who took the famous shot that was on the SI cover. Allie Wagner, who was one of the aspiring teammates for that year. She actually didn't make the team, but was watching it from the stands. And then my fourth and the most important part was Brandy. I did all the interviews through Zoom and I had a camera crew on site and I did the interviews through the computer. This is all during COVID. We put that story together. It was a half hour show. And and it's one of the most challenging things just because it was all through COVID and I had to go through the FIFA library for that game. And literally I had to request so much footage from them just from that game because I had so many cameras for that event. And it was unbelievable because everything kind of fell into place. And I actually found footage of Ali walking around in the stands with her could-be teammates that weren't chosen for that 
It turned out to be a really good show. I was really proud of it. But that was one of the favorite things that I had done there, for sure. Could you kind of elaborate more on what it's like to work in the media during COVID and just how much it really affected everybody having to do their jobs? We just had to learn how to do our jobs in a different way. I was in the bubble for the tournament in Indianapolis. I was in the bubble for a month. We were testing every morning at 7 a.m., making sure nobody got contaminated by anything. And literally, I lived out of my room and lived out of the Indianapolis Convention Center for a month. I was doing live hits with John Rothstein every night. It was a grind, but you know what? It was an experience that everybody can go to and reflect and be like, wow, we lived through that and we made it work and we kept it to the same level. The product didn't suffer. And it was just tough, obviously, because no one knew what was going on in the world, but it was eye-opening. And at the same time, we got to learn our business in a whole different way. But we all, I think, are better producers, better shooters, better everything from that experience knowing people who were doing it live and now all of a sudden instead of doing it from sight now you're doing it in a control room and it created a whole different way of doing tv i think oh yeah totally definitely did i mean it just gave us the opportunity to be able to show people that it could be done remotely sometimes it's nice to work from home isn't it yeah. Sometimes it can be more productive because you're in the office and you have people coming over to say hello and kind of interrupting your day when you're trying to get things done. And you have to obviously stay motivated and you have to finish your stuff while you're at home because you can get sidetracked there too. But it's definitely something that's great to have the chance to do. Did you always want to be a producer? Did you want to work on camera like many of us did, including me? I cherish, I'm very grateful that I've been able to have the career in television that I've always wanted because I've wanted to be working television since the early days when I was in the dressing room with my dad, watching somebody come in and set up a monitor and set up a camera. I was always intrigued by that. First, it started as, oh, I want to be a broadcaster. I want to be play-by-play guy and I want to be on camera. But then it kind of developed to, oh, you know what I'd like? behind the scenes. I like behind the camera and stuff. And I'm very lucky that I had that vision, I guess, when I was younger and I was able to make it work somehow, not in the conventional way, but all the pieces kind of fell into place. And I'm very fortunate and lucky to have had that experience. You had a chance to have an experience that a lot of people who are in the media didn't get to have growing up. Maybe it's a double-edged sword because I feel like I no boxers. And now that, that I got the chance to work with Showtime for a little bit and work in their camps, I kind of feel like I knew the moods and the signals to watch out for and when you can approach them and when you can't and when you have to keep your distance. So I kind of feel like I have a good perspective and a good feeling on when and when not to approach somebody and when it seems like they're ready to have questions asked and things like that. So I think obviously growing up, with the boxing background and having someone approaching my dad, I'm very sensitive to not wanting to bother athletes or when I can and when I can't. I have a pretty good sense of athletes and their moods. Growing up, did it ever bother you that you could be OT with your dad and somebody would come up and ask for an autograph? It was something that you just had to get used to. There was maybe a time where I might have gotten annoyed and I like rolled my eyes on my dad and he was don't ever do that. 
Do not ever do that. These are the people that admire me. And my dad, that's the one thing about my dad that I always admired. It didn't matter where he was or what he was doing. If someone came up to him to talk to him, my dad gave him all the time in the world. He would sit there with somebody for five to 10 minutes, 15 minutes. If that person kept talking, he would keep talking. He cherished those moments. He just thought of it as something that came with obviously his job and these people admired him. So it was just only the respect that he had to show them and give them the time that they warranted. After a while, I realized that I can't do anything about it. And you just have to accept it and cherish those moments. Cause you know what? They don't last forever. Obviously with my dad passing, but I would love for him to still be around and be out with him and have somebody come up and show him how much they admired him. And I think, like I said, that that was his number one thing is always showing his fans that he appreciated them and that he was always willing to sign an autograph and even have a conversation with him at any time of the day. Speaking of cherishing moments, I've certainly cherished this conversation that you and I have had and getting to catch up. I want to thank you for coming on the I Play 2 podcast today and sharing your times growing up in Miami, playing lacrosse, your TV career, and all the boxing memories you have. Thank you so much, Alexis, and let's stay in touch. I appreciate your time and appreciate you having me on.